Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran. A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. Barry Peterson, You're a doc. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. Right. You're saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recreation. It's no wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect doping yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot? Good morning. You are listening to the Cannabis Hour, a bi-weekly radio program where we discuss all things cannabis. I'm your host, Jen Procacci. Thanks for tuning in today. Today is Thanksgiving, so we're going to be taking this opportunity to learn about the intersection of legal cannabis and one of our tribal communities as we listen to the piece Growing on the Res, which is a story about our local Hopland band of Pomo Indians attempt to enter the legal cultivation space. I also played that for you last year. You may remember it. And even if you've heard it once, it is so interesting. It is absolutely worth a second listen. And after that, I will be playing two Emerald Cup talks for you. The first one is with Sunshine Johnston, and it's called Low Impact Winter Farming. Sunshine covers some really cool stuff about overwintering mother plants in her garden and more things like that. Definitely timely and interesting info. And after her talk, I'll be wrapping up the show with another Emerald Cup talk titled Rainwater Catchment and Groundwater Recharge with Dan Marr where Dan talks about catching rainwater over our winter season and basically how our water systems function. Both of those talks are from the 2018 Emerald Cup. So without further ado, here is Growing on the Res. Narration is by Nate Khan, and audio is by Elphick Woe. A lot of natives have a lot of good ideas, a lot of great ideas. It's just natives don't have access to capital to make those ideas pop. And even if they could, you guys know how pretty much every market is set up. I mean, you have people who control it, and then they decide who they want to let in. And that's usually by influencers. Like, if you create something hot, you get the influencers to push your product or your whatever you're doing. A lot of natives don't have access to those influencers or the capital or, you know, any of that. So it's, it's kind of hard to take it from A to C when B is like invisible, basically, to all natives. Joe San Diego is the chairman of the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians. His tribe is based in Mendocino County, California. We sat in on a dinner at the Las Vegas branch of Italian-American eatery Carbone, while he and some others discussed the tangled-up world of cannabis and Native Americans in the United States, especially California. Among Joe's guests were the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians chair, Michael Hunter, but who usually goes by Hunter. Both were in town as part of RES, or the Reservation Economic Summit. This was put on by the National Center for American Indian Economic Development. Our liaison through it all was Will, who's part of Sherbinsky, a renowned California cannabis company. They gain cred for award-winning strains of cannabis and products with dessert-inspired names such as Sunset Sherbert, Pink Panties, Gelato, and Mochi. 
The mastermind is a guy named Mr. Sherbinsky, or Sherb, as those around him say, a member of the famed Cookie family collective of growers who's created the original Girl Scout cookie strain, a variety that's widely referenced in today's mainstream rap and hip hop. Together with Joe, they've struck a deal to grow on land owned by Joe's tribe. Over dinner, they explained how the elaborate and legal operation works to both us and Hunter, who wanted to know more about the emerging industry many tribes are getting into. Before we start though, we want to preface that there's going to be a few F-bombs in this story, so consider your surroundings. As we said earlier, this story takes place on the Indian reservation of Hopland. Here, tribal chairman Joe was looking to develop some land owned by his tribe the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians. The partner? Cannabis Flower Band Sherbinsky, represented by Will. So what makes this deal so lucrative? Why would a cannabis grower want to go out of their way to start growing on an Indian reservation of all places? The short answer is that doing so offers a bandage that stems from the reservation's historical status. Indian reservations in the United States or Canada were pieces of land allotted to different tribes throughout the colonial history of both countries. In the United States, at least, there are 326 recognized Indian reservations. Now, the exact formative history of each of them varies, with some being established after signing treaties to surrender land, but some of the reservations were formed as the result of the Indian Removal Act signed by President Andrew Jackson in 1830. This meant forcing natives off of ancestral lands in the southern and eastern United States that were favored by settlers in exchange for designated plots further west. In his annual message to Congress, President Jackson wrote the following about natives. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement, which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. Established in the midst of another and a superior race, and without appreciating the causes of their inferiority or seeking to control them, they must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and disappear. It would be a long time before the government would significantly update its views on native rights to self-determination. In 1970, President Nixon outlined policy changes that supported Indian self-determination, but the spirit of Jackson's message hasn't gone quietly either. Today, the US federal government officially recognizes tribal nations as domestic dependent sovereign nations. Not all of these tribes have reservations, a large designated plot of land to call home, but for all intents and purposes, federally recognized tribes and the United States interact on a government to government principle. This separation means that yes, tribes have both the right and authority to regulate activities on their lands. This includes enacting or enforcing laws and regulations that are, and this will be important later, stricter or more lenient than those in their surrounding states. This means that aside from their own governments, tribal nations have their own courts and law enforcement on reservation lands, among other things. And because of their status, certain federal, state, and property taxes don't apply on Indian lands, although individuals still pay the same taxes as their fellow U.S. citizens. 
Now, hearing just that part alone makes reservations sound like the ideal place to make bank while the legal side of an emerging industry is still catching up. Some sort of financial or legal haven inside the United States. This should make all tribes and their members extremely wealthy. But hold on, it's not that simple. Historically and even today, Indian reservations in North America have not fared well with economic and living conditions lagging far behind the standards of their respective countries. The U.S. Census found that, in 2014, 28.3% of American Indians and Alaskan Natives were in poverty, the highest of any race group and much higher than the 2050 national rate of 14.7%. In addition to poverty, unemployment, addiction, and suicide are some of the social issues affecting Native peoples, and the case is typically worse on reservations. There are many reasons for these statistics, but for the sake of brevity, we'll talk about the main economic factor, distance. Reservations have been, as per the treaties that created them, established in areas that are remote or unfavorable, and deliberately so. This means they're generally located far from major cities, meaning they lack the traffic needed to sustain certain markets. And with tiny populations, the spending power just isn't there to make leaps and bounds. So just how have many tribes supported themselves? Well, it depends. Some reservations have natural resources that can be tapped, and some have good land for agriculture. Now these would be good because the products or raw materials can flow outwards towards the markets and the buyers. For other tribes, such as hunters, they can benefit from a single gas station on a nearby highway. But if a tribe like Joe's didn't have, say, oil and gas, huge patches of soil for mass farming, or even a nearby highway, how could they get people to leave the cities and spend money on the res? Those other income streams aside, when most non-natives think about the most financially successful native-run operations, they're probably thinking about casinos and resorts. These are certainly a draw for tourists and people who just like to gamble. But for tribes, it can be the equivalent of putting all your eggs in one basket. Having worked extensively in the casino business, like his tribe's own Hoplin Shokawa Casino, Joe understands this all too well. Yeah, I mean, it's like any other business. The market gets so saturated, you kind of have to distinguish yourself to capture the market you want. Joe recalls how for the first five years of relying on gaming, there was only one other casino apart from theirs. Over time, River Rock opened 30 miles south, closer to San Francisco. Then finally, around a few years ago, Grayton Casino opened up further that way, less than an hour closer. This all but soaked up the rest of what could have been business for his tribe's casino. It's kind of like the price is right, you know what I mean? It's like whoever gets closest to the population, they end up getting the bulk of the lion's share of the profit. There's only so many people, you know what I mean? So my approach was to do something younger, different than everything everybody else was doing. I just didn't have the support to do it. Joe's experience working in gaming and his own years on tribal council make for a very broad perspective of business viability on tribal lands but he doesn't see it being the be-all and end-all for reservation economies. Like many other tribes, his is trying to move away from strictly gaming 
and not just because of the aforementioned risk. Joe marks a definite generational shift for natives in terms of business direction. I think gaming overall, like in the United States, is just kind of like heading in a different direction. You know what I mean? It's just um, in our market that we have, it's it's like super based for like a, a lot of older people. You know what I mean? And a lot of the stuff I do is kind of aimed towards like a younger crowd. We did a lot of like MMA fights, live MMA, live concerts and stuff. Yeah. So semi-regular events aside, there's just no ignoring the potential of cannabis, especially when the conditions couldn't be any riper. Something Joe and many other native leaders are keenly aware of. Historically, California has been one of the most cannabis-tolerant states, having first decriminalized marijuana in 1975. This reduced possession of an ounce of cannabis to just a misdemeanor. In 1996, with the Compassionate Use Act, California became the first state to legalize marijuana for medicinal use when recommended by a doctor. With that said, cannabis legislation in California is continuing to evolve, and the doors have opened towards the legislation and taxation for recreational use. California Proposition 64, or commonly the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, was just approved on November 8, 2016. That made it legal for individuals to use and grow marijuana for personal recreational use, with the business and taxation aspects to follow next year, on January 1st, 2018. But even before this highly anticipated legal green light, the pieces have been coming together for a few years, as Joe recognized the untapped resources sitting right in his backyard. Before I was on council, they weren't really using the land for anything, you know what I mean? And, and um, me and a couple of my cousins were cruising around on the res, just checking different areas out and being like, you know, we could use this for this, use that for that. And so when I met Will and we started talking about, you know, moving into this space, I mean, I already had the area picked out. I knew the perfect area, the perfect location, just because the way it's set up, there's one road in, one road out. We even had a study done, like the access to sunlight, the sun, you know, the sun belt, how it moves across the res and like, if you look at like where we are, I mean, it's, it's direct sunlight all day and all night, you know what I mean, along that whole strip. With his initial survey complete, Joe recognized the value of the land, specifically for cannabis, and more importantly, a new path for his tribe's economic future. While Hunter's land includes proximity to the freeway for a lucrative gas station, Hoplin needed a different approach. As Sherbinsky continues to develop its brand as a flower company, for cannabis flower, that is, it's embarking on a bold movement to be just as much a lifestyle brand. And as an early partner in Sherbinsky, Joe would be building the foundation for a long-term solution. I think for us in Hopland, our location has never been our strength, but I think in a cannabis space, our location is a strength. And the amount of property that we have, I mean, we have something around 2,000 total, and it's hidden, and it's, it's, it's nice. So like, Long-term success, you know, I see us, like I said, with Sherbinsky and them developing that brand, you know, being a part of that, um, collecting our tax revenue, getting away from the gaming. You know, I, I support gaming 100%. I, I love it. And I, I can see us being in gaming, you know, you know, until the end. But just having a different revenue stream that doesn't depend on gaming and doesn't depend on traffic of business coming into town and traffic of people coming into town, something that we can build and grow and ship out anywhere we want. Moving away from the service industry towards production could open the doors economically. 
but getting away from gaming and shifting towards cannabis wasn't going to be easy. Joe definitely had the entrepreneurial drive and did his due diligence, but there were more than a couple of hurdles in the way. One thing Will had mentioned was Joe's acute awareness of the finer points of tribal law. As tribal council chair, Joe knew the intricacies of it all, but he needed somebody who knew the state laws where the surrounding market was located. This is where Will comes in. While he's not a lawyer, he does know the legal side of cannabis in California. But more importantly, he's personally passionate about cannabis and knows how to articulate and deconstruct its challenges. Legal and you know, quote unquote, you know, consultants made it made people more skeptical instead of me going hard to heart with people one on one, not a full business team, you know, and be like, oh, this is an average guy. This is, you know, they're successful. They, they do other businesses. And I felt like that was much easier than me coming with my lawyers and coming with a certain consultants and liaisons and stuff like that. I think that was um, I didn't like that approach at all. With all of the potential complications surrounding state law, sorting out that legal side was hard enough. But for a California company hoping to set up shop in Indian country, it had to persuade a whole nother government. The political aspect of tribes, like things can change overnight. For us, we, we, we make contracts and we draft the ordinances and draft the contracts that make them as bulletproof as possible. But if I don't have council support, like they can make my life incredibly hard. And, give us to a point where we're at a roadblock where we're not going to want to invest any more money on infrastructure or do our project there, you know? Yeah. So that 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 is always there. That that problem is always there. If you have a, a, a tribe that's not doing financially well and you have a membership that has a lot of issues and, and they're, they're going through certain, you know, poverty issues, that's going to be a problem because it's going to reflect on the council and the council is going to want to think that they're going to be able to do things on their or whatever the case might be and they might want to run us off for a project. But um, those are things we're always, we always have to worry about. But. Poverty is still a real issue, even as the next generation of natives is looking for ways to move forward. With poverty often comes substance abuse. And for California-based natives, alcohol and meth are the most pervasive. Because of that, it's understandable why tribal leaders would be reluctant to produce a controlled substance, and on the reservation, no less. But Joe sees things differently. Native people a lot, I mean, what, I, what I've seen a lot in Native people, just, just growing up around different tribes and my different cousins and stuff, a lot of the times, you know, they, they demonize, like, any type of drugs, any types of alcohol. I think it works against tribes when they do that. Just me personally, like, you know, Part of my family is like 100% okay with people drinking, right? And then the other part of my family is like, oh, it's the worst thing in the world. But you look at like the part that demonizes it, and those guys, you know, are the ones who struggle with alcohol dependency and, you know, those kind of issues. And the ones who don't, they learn to drink responsibly and it's just, it's not an issue. It's kind of like a cultural thing. Like, I mean, if you look at Italy, wine is considered food over there. So you don't have like a lot of alcoholism over there. Whereas like in native communities, I see it as an issue. You know what I mean? It's more of a problem. I think some tribal leaders just don't want cannabis around their community, which is fine. When you're trying to harness the power of something that you believe in, but that can also be inherently destructive, it's already a huge challenge when your own community doesn't support it right away. Fortunately, or unfortunately, Will was able to sway the tribal council in a way that, try as he did, Joe hadn't been able to. 
messed up thing. This is messed up things. I've been talking to my membership for the past two years, right? And I don't want to say that I'm better spoken than Will or you know what I mean, well, whatever. I mean, I think I think Will's very well spoken, but I've been saying the same thing to these guys for the past two years, and I have like the, the same intentions as he does, and you know, now I'm a tribal <laughs> member, and I'll, I'll go to my membership meetings and talk, say the same thing to you. They're like, oh my God, Joe, how dare you? <laughs> you crooked bastard, you know, all this stuff, right? And I'm like, I'm here trying to help you guys, man. Like, and then this guy comes in, like, like two weeks ago we have our membership meeting. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about it anymore because I know what I'm going to get. I know my answer. I know my, my reception ain't going to be, you know, what I want right. to be. Will, why don't you come over there and do it? Will comes up, everybody's like, just loves this guy. Weeks, they're yeah, like, really? Yeah. Travel Andrews, they're coming up to the microphone and telling them, like, they're like, how yeah, much? If it wasn't for our leader, like, you know what? They love Will. You're like, like, bro. Like, like, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? So, like, so like as an outsider, like, this guy gets, this guy gets more love than me. Smarter, yeah. yeah. I think it definitely plays to the strike that I am Asian, so I'm also like a minority. Yeah. If I was like, you know, Caucasian, like white, I think it'd be a different. I, I, I personally think it'd be different. Given the history of racially tinged mistrust between tribes and outsiders, Will might have facilitated the partnership in a way he hadn't expected, just by being, well, Will. To recap, by this point, Joe had the support of his tribe, and with Will's help, the legal base to grow medicinal cannabis bound for California dispensaries. And as an added layer of protection, 2013's Cole Memorandum signaled a huge change in the way the federal government dealt with cannabis. It basically meant federal resources were to be less focused on prosecuting individuals that followed state laws for medicinal use. Naturally, the memorandum turned into discussion of how it applied to tribal sovereignty and cannabis legislation. The next year, in December 2014, a clarifying memo stated that the federal government's non-interference policies that applied to the 50 states would also apply to 326 recognized American Indian reservations, even if the number of them that were looking to legalize was actually pretty small. Still, that should have meant further legal autonomy for tribes, which meant they could write their own laws surrounding cannabis. When asked, Will explained to Hunter the benefits of growing in Indian country. But I'm talking about equipment that we buy or purchase, like whether it's nutrients and pots, pans, lights, whatever it is, we, we, we have protections that for that. That's, that's Will points out that in addition to an exemption on taxes for equipment, reservations generally have more fluidity on the zoning and permitting requirements, the bureaucratic bulk of which could bog down the approval process for years elsewhere. It's a work in progress and we can start generating revenues from that. In most of these places, the council members are already fighting each other. The planning department's fighting each other. You don't know when you're going to get that permit and when you're going to get that license. And you don't know if they're going to change the ordinance or certain things. Yeah. And, then the, and then the state comes in and says, okay, you know, these, we're only going to issue these class of licenses depending on the given real estate that you have. And that's another permitting process. So there's just multiple, multiple steps. It's understandable 
that the expediency of cannabis legislation and scalability on tribal lands make them more attractive to prospective farmers, while recognition of tribal sovereignty should protect the sale of goods on tribal lands, provided, of course, everyone does all the homework. Still, the biggest issue facing Joe and Will has always and will continue to be sales off of reservation land. But for a company as established as Sherbinsky, there was no room for taking risks. And so Will was proactive in informing and assuring the powers that be of the operation's intentions. How, how we've been navigating around that is that the very first day that we even had the property up there and we had the ordinance passed, I invited the Board of Equalization, which is the taxing authority for the state, and let them know, like, okay, this is what we're doing. We want to pay taxes. We want to, we want to give the state money as well. You know, we're, we're a California company. We're selling it to California dispensaries. This is the revenue that's going to be created from it. It's just that most tribes, they don't want to have that dialogue, you know, direct with them. And they also get a bad taste of, like, they hear they, all they do is hear stories. They don't really get to meet the people. So they hear stories of, like, them blowing out, you know, 20 acres, unregulated, bringing it unregulated into the California market with no type of tracking from it. These guys just want to understand what we're doing. And, of course, they're going to, they want to make a little bit of money off of it because it's coming into the California market. Us as a company, we're completely fine doing that. But I think it's very important for tribes to have some sort of dialogue with the state. But even after jumping through the layers and layers of intricate legal hoops to run a legitimate cannabis operation, there were more vindictive players in the game, as Joe and Will found. So Humboldt's Growers Association, we had like a meeting in Frisco, and uh, I think Sherb went to it, right? Mm -hmm. And basically they wanted to introduce a bill that if a tribe has a casino, they can't grow any, they can't be involved in the cannabis industry. Yeah. I know, but what's crazy is like, it's one of the only bills that like, basically... What's crazy like is that almost got brought to the assembly. That almost got brought to the table. It and, like, it's, and it's like one of the most racist bills. Like, they literally yeah, identify, how can you like, justify a, that? They identify like a race of people. While businesses will always try to find ways to deal with competitors in the same industry, the attempt to specifically limit the income diversity of natives is very telling. Despite clear economic gains for not only the tribes hosting a cannabis operation, but also the state where the product is going to be sold, some parties are trying to intervene through lobbying, and some of them have been even more direct. Joe and Will recall their greatest setback yet. And we have a very, very strong case. Because all our lawyers know, we're in the medical marijuana business, if cops come to a, a legal grow that they've been staking out or they get a warrant for, they come onto that property. That property has licenses, lawyers calling you saying this is a legal grow, take a look at our paperwork. They disregard everything, don't listen to anybody, don't call tribal council, don't call tribal police. Purely with mulchers, in and out 20 minutes just to cut all the crops, that's a shakedown. Because what's happened before is, and this happened in Santa Cruz at my friend's property. Santa Cruz sheriffs came onto their property and the lawyers went out there and were like, hey, if you cut all these plants down, this is the total amount that you guys are gonna be liable for. I suggest you guys need to do whatever research to see that if this is legal or, or, or illegal. If you guys think this is illegal, guess what? We're right here, come arrest everybody. But here's all our paperwork. So what the cops do, they take pictures, they take samples. They'll take one or two plants, you know? And they go back. You don't go and eradicate 850 plants 
The most recent developments include a lawsuit officially filed by the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians and Wills Thera Fields Incorporated. It pertains to the raid on September 2nd, 2016, where a sheriff came onto the property and ordered the destruction of over 800 mature cannabis plants. We reached out to Mendocino County Sheriff's Office and the specific sheriff in question, but were unable to get a reply. In recent years, law enforcement has been cracking down on farms in California. Now, these crackdowns have been for violating water diversion regulations, especially during the state's drought period, and amid the alleged growing drug-related violence in Mendocino, which has been infamously dubbed the Emerald Triangle. Still, Joe and Will's frustration is inevitable, given they tried so hard to play by the rules. With the original plan to produce around five to six pounds of medicinal grade cannabis per plant, Will estimated the losses at over six million USD. Are these guys supposed to be sheriffs? Are these guys supposed to be gangsters? You want to play gangsters with Big Bank? Let's go, you know? Big Bank? Like, you guys are small town dudes. Like, you're going to hate on us? Like, we're trying to do everything above, overboard. We're trying to can empower the community. We're trying to make money for everybody. We're investing millions of dollars structuring around legally, creating jobs, creating wealth in the area. And you're gonna come for us for what? Just because you think these with tribes the poor, are gonna make more money? With most of the, the poorest people. With the poorest people, you know? Not that shit is infuriating to me. In addition to interfering so heavily with what was a legitimate operation, there were also some pretty, shall we say, inflated assumptions about their identities. Now there were a few other comments that would elicit some very justified eye rolls. But let's just conclude by saying that despite the myriad setbacks, Joe and Will see the bigger picture. Their legal battle is far from over. But even when the dust settles and the rush of what's been called the Green Rush has passed, they'll be part of history in the making. It's not only a watershed moment for the evolving legal American cannabis industry, but also for other tribes too. While casinos certainly enjoyed its time as the poster child for reservation economies, for tribes hoping to develop an industry on their reservations, cannabis marks the beginning of a new chapter. It's one where natives have a very good shot at exerting the self-sufficiency that naysayers from President Jackson to grizzled racists born much later have always accused them of lacking. And most importantly, it's one where the next generation of entrepreneurial natives like Joe and Hunter can pick up that torch and lead both native and non-native alike. Why? Let's just say the next step for Joe and Will is to secure a gentleman's agreement with the powers that be. This is more formally known as a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU for short. Once they get that to continue their legal grow-up, others can follow suit. I think they call that sharing the wealth. The big thing is, too, is like if we do get an MOU with them and we work this out, it's not just Hoplin that benefits from it. It's every single tribe that wants to do, it gets in the cannabis space. All the tribes of Mendo are gonna benefit from it directly because they're just gonna take the MOU that they have with Hoplin and they're gonna, you know, cookie cutter it to every other tribe. 
But it doesn't matter because whatever you get, whatever you, you get, get, I get. Try again, yeah. 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 Well, and, and that's the thing, like with me, you know what I mean? Like I know, like from my tribe, you know, we're 100 all in. My only, you know, reason for bringing Hunter into it is, is just, you know, it's an opportunity for him, and I'm not a hater. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like I see it as, as, you know, another tribe to be killing it too. Um, and instead of keeping, you know, something like this to myself, I, I just, I, I really believe in like synergy. You know what I mean? Between people and between, you know, what I mean, the universe, between everything. And so, like, the more positive, you know, energy I can put into that, the more, you know, lives I can touch, the more people I can bless with that the better, you know what I mean, the more it comes back to me. So today what I'm going to talk about is two crops that a home grower can do without doing a dep. You can do your full term and then you can also do a winter run without having to cover it. And I'll explain to you the time of year to do that. And there are some benefits. So some of the reasons why people want to overwinter and grow is because they want to get an early start and grow big plants. The other one is to overwinter genetics. You have something really good and you want to hold on to it. And another interest that home growers have is they want to juice. They want to have access to fresh, green, raw cannabis. And this is a way to do that. So what happens in the winter is that it gets cold and the daylight hours get really short. So when the temperatures go down, the plant's metabolism slows down quite a bit. And you'll get less if, because I'm growing, I'm, I'm a coastal, generally a, a coastal grower. That's where I've done my winter farms is on the coast. And now I'm a little bit inland, but I'm still temperate. So I'm, my temperatures tend to be uh, like, early kind of um, low 40s upper 30s generally for the lows and so that's so I'm not adding heat to my winter grow and what I do is I just depend on the sun is my primary heat source so if I'm having cold cloudy days all day then it's like it's just really cold and the growth slows down a lot and the metabolism slows down so you want to be watching the weather closely. So what happened in 2014, we had a, almost like a two-week cold spell. It got down to uh, like below um, in the upper teens for about two weeks. And it got really, really cold. It got so cold, I left my lights on like 24 hours. I was like totally freaking out. But one of the mistakes I made is I didn't look at the weather and I took cuttings the day before the cold spell came in. And that stress from taking the cuttings, it stunted the plants. And I think out of about, maybe about 30, about two of them might, might have even died. It was like pretty intense. So you want to be careful when you take cuttings and watching the weather. They don't stress them out. And so that was, um, and then I made another mistake that same year. I got all excited about putting them out in the garden and I didn't look at the weather and it hailed. And, like, if I had just left them under this little greenhouse thing, they would have been protected. But, no, I had to spread them all over the garden. And the hail came down, and it was... But they survived. So what I've learned is that the plants are very, very resilient, and they can really handle quite a bit of cold temperatures. So you don't have to baby them too much. They can actually handle quite, quite a bit. 
Um, there's one more thing I wanted to say about the cold and the stress. Yeah, you just want to you just want to watch it and and be be mindful of that. So the next question is, where do you do your winter home grow? So you can you put it in a south-facing window of your house and just have a potted plant and put it there in the window and it's to get some warmth from the house. And that's, that's definitely worth checking out with, like, just put a little light on it maybe, give, give it some supplemental light. And don't worry about your bud looking kind of fluffy or whatever. It's great. You grew it. Maybe you're going to eat it. Maybe you're going to put it into some milk and soak it and then put it in Cheerios, whatever you do. It's fine. It's plenty good. And then the other place is maybe on your porch, south facing, and you just cover it. Maybe just put like um, just a piece of like clear siding of some sort just to give it a little bit of protection. It's not like a greenhouse. And I've also grown in a greenhouse. So right now I'm in a greenhouse with potted plants, but I've also grown in a garden bed in a greenhouse and that works out great because you can use what I did in that case is I used a soil a heating soil cable and I dug it just buried it lightly in the soil and then I used a fabric like a cotton fabric but you could use blankets any kind of breathable sheets and you, and you have a, a mini hoop house over your little garden bed and then you can insulate it at night with on the on an especially cold cold night so that's one way you could get a little bit more heat. So yeah, those are some of the locations to be thinking about. So yeah, give it a try. And what happens is when it's cold, so you got to watch the freezes. And you want to use a, a soil that is a light, fluffy kind of soil, not something heavy. Because when it freezes, if that water, if, if your soil is just full of water, when the temperatures get below freezing, the plant will actually release water through its roots so that the cells aren't freezing and bursting and whatnot. So you want to use a soil that, that drains really well. And the other thing that I do is that I, don't, I use a very neutral soil. I don't add any nutrients. And the reason why is because I'm not watering very often. So the water is just sitting there. And if you have a small plant in a big pot, it's just going to sit there wet, and it's not really going to be helping. It's, um, if you have that really wet soil and you have organics in there, my fear is that the, the organics might promote some pathogens. You might get some of the decaying microorganisms that cause mold and really aren't the best thing. So I keep the soil really neutral, and then I'll take it a step further so that my watering is actually a flush because I might only be watering once a week, maybe even like 10 days or something like that. So, so what I'm doing with the flush is that I'm keeping any kind of biofilm from like getting onto the roots and just keeping them clean. And I use, I will give you a couple of things that I use. I use something from Flying Skull. It's called Z7, part one and two. And it's an enzyme and it washes the roots. It's great if you have like powdery mildew or like it can help suppress some mold. And they also make something called flora extract, which helps keep the plants green, and it's also uh, neutral. And soluble calcium is good, too. And that will also help, help the plant with stress and also work as a flush. Uh, the other thing is the, nut so the nutrients. Um, I do use some 
nutrients, and there's some specific specific nutrients to look at for dealing with frost and freeze damage. Um, And there's also nutrients that are lost in the nursery. So when early in the season, I got small plants in big pots. I'm not worrying about fertilizer. But then starting around February, it's getting a little warmer. The daylight hours are increasing. The plants have gotten bigger. And one of the one of the de- first deficiencies that I see is sulfur. And so you want to have something, the way to identify sulfur deficiency is the whole plant, it's turning yellow, the whole plant, especially the, the younger growth. So sulfur is, and it's mobile in the soil. So if you're using pots, you're just losing, every time you water, you're just losing sulfur. And so for what I'll do for my winter crop, or even just for my nursery in general, is I'll do a, a top dress. And for the top dress, I use a, it's a volcanic ash, and it does come all the way from Montana, which is a long, long ways. So I'm very careful about how much of this I use. I like it because it's from the earth, and it's not heavily processed. And I also, locally, in Humboldt County, we have something called Sensational Solutions, and they make something called Coffee Mag, and iron comes up. So after you start losing your sulfur, if you don't take care of the sulfur, then you're, like, losing your iron. And this is also fairly common. I see this quite a bit in the nursery. And then, of course, for biology... The Terravesco worm castings, there's not, there's something going on in those Terravesco. I don't know what it is. It's more than just worm castings, but they have a lot, a lot of biology, and you just use a very, very small amount. So those can go a long ways. What's good about using the silica is that it helps strengthen the cell walls and it helps strengthen the stems and the branches while you're while you're in a nursery which can help you transition outdoors and have a stronger plant and it also helps with the freezes too to give it better structure and there is so there's a few key nutrients if you have a freeze and you think that your plants have frost damage one of the things to look for is you'll see these little spots and on the leaves and those spots on the leaves are where the cell walls have ruptured and you will lose your potassium and your potassium gets lost through leakage from the breakage of the cell walls so that can be replenished and i use i like to use a lot of I use plant extracts for my potassium primarily. I have a fermented nettle that I really like for that. And that's a simple just picking nettles and making it like a wine open open vat for about eight days and watching the temperatures. And then when it's, when it's done, it's done, and you strain it, put it in a container, cover it, rack it a month later and it's clear and smells great, and I've even drank it, so it's fine. I, and that's a good source of potassium, and when I drank it, it tasted salty. I was, like, pretty certain I was getting some potassium in that. And the other nutrient, I don't use, like I said, I didn't use any fertilizer in my production farm during flower and blooming, 
And the only time I use phosphorus is during the winter because it's cold and the plants need energy and their metab metabolism slowed down. And so a little bit of phosphorus is actually helpful for the plants. But you just want to be careful because they don't need a lot because the metab metabolism is slow. So you don't want to hit them with, with too much, just a little light amount. And then I also... Um, zinc is another important uh, mineral to consider because what happens is that when the when it's cold and you have these fluctuations, it causes the oxygen hormones to fluctuate, and you your growth can get kind of stunted. And you can use the zinc to help balance out the growth hormones during during the winter. And it will also help you recover from frost damage and freezes. And the other one, again, is calcium. It's important to have, be using that during the winter. It will help with stress. It will also help with recovery. It will help the plant use the little bit of nutrients that you are giving it. So the other question is, okay, so you got, you got two, you think that you're planning for two crops. Now, you've got these big plants growing and you're like, yeah, I'm going to take these outside and I'm going to grow them really, really big under the full sun. Now, if you don't get the timing right, what happens is the plants will start to pre-flower and they might not stop pre-flowering and then they'll be more, they won't grow as much and you won't get those big plants you're hoping to get and you might spend a lot, a lot of time thinning and pruning out those buds to make them look pretty. So, the timing is important, and here is, here's one way to look at it. So starting March 1st, lowering your timer every 15 minutes for two months, and that's going to put you at May 1st. Now, if you look at the, the daylight hours and the difference, so every day you're getting a little bit more, you're adding a little bit more time of daylight, over the course of two weeks from, from the beginning of May to mid-May, you will have gained a whole half hour. So that's like the first week of May you got 15 minutes, the second week of May you got 15 minutes, and that's going to start, it's going to start de decreasing. Now if you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to wait until the summer solstice, that's when the most amount of daylight hours are, well that difference in daylight hours is actually much less. It's actually over the, from like June 7th to about to the solstice, it's only six minutes. That's actually gained over time. So going for May 1st and lowering those hours to get you down to 14, that's where you want to be to help your plants transition. And another is different types of strains will transition better than others. So that's another consideration. And you can, okay, so um, so now you have, now you're trying to plan for these two crops. And the winter crop is the crop that I call, I call the free run. And the free run, so you're, you, you can get, you can flower without having to depth. This is where you can get your grape for making food or for juicing or whatever you want to do or for flour. Check out some, some genetics, your off-season crop. If you put that, so the, the window to put the plants out into the sun 
into the daylight, normal daylight hours is from about mid-February to mid-March. That means the latest it will finish is by mid-May. And so that, so, and it's always a, a space, right? You're juggling your space, you've transplanted things, you need to make more room, you move the mothers out, you let them flower in, in the off season. And, and then you, yeah, so that, that space is pretty, pretty key. And the other thing is you, you can start your seeds now in November, right? And that's what I did so that I can, I, I'm really excited about some new crosses and I'm so excited I got to try them early and then maybe I can put more into production, put them into my production farm for next spring. So those all start in November and then they will hopefully be showing if they're male or female early in the spring. And what's really nice about doing the winter run and flowering is you get great sugars. Really, really good sugar development, really nice and sweet, just beautiful terpenes. And yeah, so that's, that's super tasty. So I just want to encourage everyone to try this and not like you don't need much. Just keep it as low input as you can. Um, and I would also... There's also other people here who are more, who do farm in temperatures that are like not so coastal and much more colder. That'd be Dragonfly Earth Medicine. And that's also Jeff Lowenfels. He's up there in Alaska and he's probably got lots of good tricks for like helping, helping grow in some pretty cold conditions. So just want to thank everyone for being here and thanks Emerald Cup for having me. Thank you. Oh yeah, 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 I can take questions. Yeah, so the, the dry farming is that the plants really, actually, believe it or not, the plants, they, they really don't want to be babied so much. Like, they actually do better with less water and less fertilizer. So um, I live in a place where the water table is fairly high, but I think you could do it just by getting um, with hugel culture and lots and lots and lots of compost. If you spend a few years with some nice soil pits, because soil, compost holds a lot of moisture, and you only need to you only need that moisture for so much time, and so it, there's a good chance that with yeah a swale would do well too for sure yeah and you just you just put your you just watch the seasons maybe start a little early dig a hole put your hand in the hole and if it feels moist it's probably gonna work like just just give it a go and see see what happens. Any other questions? I don't use a heater, and the reason why is that it actually helps to just, because when I want to put the plants outside, if I'm using a heater, they just don't trans transition as well, and they have more shock, and their growth slows down, but, so if they're already alchemated to the cold, they just do better when I put them out. Yeah, I, the, the supplemental light, yeah, I do use, right now I'm using some T5s, and then I'll, and now I'm, and then I'm going to move into experimenting with a, um, with actually a, a plasma light, which is a, a more, more like more like the sun. We'll see about that. So I'm going to compare the two and see what the results are between the plasma and the natural sun. All right. Thank you. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Cool. So I'm going to lead off by talking about water. How many of you have a house? How many of you have gutters on your house? All right. How many of you have a pond? All right. How many of you are hooked up to municipal water? 
How many of you divert surface water? All right, how many of you are on a well? All right, we got a lot of groundwater folks. All right, let's start there. Groundwater. Groundwater's special. It's really old. It takes a long time to recharge these systems, unless you're fortunate enough to live in Covalo or Round Valley, where those systems recharge really quickly. So we can catch all the water we want and put it into tanks and put it into ponds. And that's the easy part. The harder part is, how do we get this water in the ground? So if you go into mature, sustainable forest systems, you'll see that there's no runoff except the runoff that's occurring in the streams. It's because all of that water is being infiltrated. It's getting into the ground. And that's how that system recharges itself every year. And then the hydrology lets it out. And that's why the top is dry first, and then as the hydrology moves down and down and down. So this really is important where we're looking at groundwater through wells. So there's a lot of systems, and we'll, I'll show you some examples out there, but there's a lot of ways we need to start looking at how can we facilitate the recharge of groundwater? How do we get more water back into the system? So that's kind of like the end of it, but the beginning of it is how much water do you need? So what's the average water use of a four-person family in California? 250 gallons a day. That's the average. I'm sure a lot of you in here use a lot less than that, right? We need to take a look at that as a domestic use, but we also have to take a look at that in our agricultural systems. So how much water do you need per square foot? How much water do you need per plant, per fruit tree? And there's a lot of things we can be doing to reduce that need. It's very easy to be like, okay, I'm going to take a three-minute shower instead of a 13-minute shower, right? I'm going to put on low-flow shower heads. That, that's so easy. We've been doing that for decades now. But we need to think about this more in our agricultural systems as well, reducing how much we need. Because if we're on groundwater, like a well, we can't really see how much is in that tank until the well does, no longer pumps water. But if we're running off of ponds and tanks, we can see as that storage shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. The solution is not to dig a deeper well. The solution is not to put in more tanks and bigger ponds. The solution is to take a look at how we can minimize how much water we actually need. So you gotta start with a water budget. How much do I need? How can I reduce it? Now, what is the most sustainable source of water? Where can that come from? If we're, if we're implementing groundwater recharge systems, it might be groundwater. If we're, if we're infiltrating more water and we're increasing in-stream flows and we have storage, it could be surface water. So it really depends on where you are and where you're at with that. So Rainwater Catchment Act of 2013, before the question is, I heard rainwater catchment is illegal. It is not illegal in the state of California. The Rainwater Catchment Act of 2013 turned rainwater landing on your roof and landing directly into storage back into private property. It is no longer public property. So you can now catch and store that water, which is pretty exciting. But when we connect this to cannabis, the surfaces of that water plays a bigger and bigger role as our testing gets more and more and more stringent. So you got to think about the surfaces that that water is touching. What kind of roofing materials do you have? What is it picking up? Right now we're getting into heavy metals testing. Shingles made 20, 30, 40 years ago 
might have some nasty heavy metals in them. So we have to think about that. But the point I really want to get across is before you go out and start getting into these systems of like rainwater catchment, you got to think about how much water you need and you got to reduce that budget down. And you'd be amazed at how much water you can store in the ground by just increasing your carbon content. You could do hugel culture or you could do something as simple as cover cropping. How many of you have cover crops growing right now? Right on. So whether you're doing veggies or cannabis, can you hear me now? All right. We have to also make sure that our soil is always protected. And I think the best way to do that is through living mulches, always having something living. Even in the wintertime, there's plenty of cover crops that we could be planting. As soon as harvest comes out, those crops go down. They thrive through the winter. You can chop and drop. You can mulch. You can till. You can do whatever your strategies are. But we really have to start by increasing our carbon storage, which relates to the increased capacity of holding water in the soil, which relates to you need less storage or you need less groundwater, and everybody's happy with that. Sound good? All right. 600 gallons per 1,000 square feet per inch of rain. 600 gallons per 1,000 square feet per inch of rain. So a 1,000 square foot house, we're up in Humboldt County, on an average annual year, 26,000 gallons of water. So now if you want to get back to the average household of four at 255, you can divide that and you can see how much water is landing on the average size home in California. There is plenty of water. It comes back to how we use it. Got time for one, two questions. Anybody? Nobody? Yeah. Storage tanks smell anaerobic at the end of the year when you get down to the bottom. This brings up the systems that you engineer to capture this water and store it. You need to make sure that you have filtration systems. And I mean from the roof to the tank, you got to establish some level of filtration and we'll show you that outside. The other piece of this is there's a beautiful bio layer that gets set up on the bottom of your tank. That's why bulkheads are offset a few inches. You don't want to disturb that bio layer. That's the layer between anaerobic and aerobic. So the less you disturb it, the better. Ponds, the same thing, right? There's that nice bio layer at the bottom. And your ponds should have plants in them. Please, even if you have a liner, there's many different ways to get plants in there to keep that water quality up. All right. Can the bio layer ever get too big? Yes. It can, and that comes back to the volume of the container, the pond. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. I want to make sure that once everybody's done, you come outside of the Rage Lounge and see all these cool things we put together for you. All right. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.